Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 26, Leviticus chapters 18 and 19. As we open our study today in Leviticus 18, this is a chapter that deals primarily with human sexuality and what's expected of Israel in that regard as opposed to what the rest of the world does during this time in history. Now we read the entire chapter of Leviticus 18 last week, so let's reread only a short section this week to kind of refresh our memories. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 130. And I'm going to read from verses 6 through 16. Leviticus chapter 18. None of you is to approach anyone who is a close relative in order to have sexual relations. I am Adonai. You are not to have sexual relations with your father. You are not to have sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have sexual relations with her. You are not to have sexual relations with your father's wife. That's your father's prerogative. You are not to have sexual relations with your sister the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with them. You're not to have sexual relations with your son's daughter or with your daughter's daughter. Do not have sexual relations with them because their sexual disgrace will become your own. You're not to have sexual relations with your father's wife's daughter born to your father because she is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with her. You're not to have sexual relations with your father's sister because she is your father's close relative. You're not to have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. You're not to have sexual relations with your father's brother. You're not to have to approach his wife because she's your aunt. You're not to have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. Do not have sexual relations with her. You are to have sexual relations. You are not to have sexual relations with your brother's wife, because this is your brother's prerogative. Okay, through verse sixteen, we're getting instructions basically on what constitutes incest. A man having sexual relations with a woman who was too closely related to him, whether that was biological or simply familial. In any of these forbidden circumstances that I've just read to you, is committing incest. Now, because culture has changed so much over the centuries, and because these prohibitions and rules were being introduced into an ancient Middle Eastern society, we can kind of lose the point of what is being laid out here. It was less a matter of putting blinders on a predatory man looking for willing women than it was about defining who a man could marry and who he could not. Bottom line, this was about a man and, and who he could marry and father children with. As much as anything, then, this was setting the boundaries around where a man could look for a wife. Now, in summary, we see that a man could not marry his own biological mother 
if, say, his father died or he divorced her. Makes sense. Nor could he marry his stepmother, his father's wife, if his father died or divorced that stepmother. And this list continues with prohibitions against marrying his natural sister, or his half-sister, or even a stepsister. A man could not consider as a possible wife his own son's daughter, a grandchild, nor that daughter's daughter. In other words, not even a female great-grandchild. Now, there's a chart on, uh, on the second panel in your outlines. That's what I call the chart of no-nos. All right? And it shows you, basically, who a man can marry and who he, who he cannot. And I don't want to get too deep into this, but considering that marital relationships and the remainder of the Bible sort of revolves around this set of commands, let's define a couple of terms. One is the term consanguineal and the other is aphanal. Now, basically, those 50 cent words, of them, consanguineal means one who is closely related to you genealogically by blood. They're a blood, a close blood relative. Okay. Athenal means that, that a certain relative has, by marriage, been joined to a particular family. And so, there really isn't any genealogical blood relationship, or if there is, it's a very, very distant one. From a legal standpoint, what has been set up here in Leviticus 18 are the rules as to what constitutes consanguinal relationships and when the relationship is finally distant enough to be considered aphanal. This is important because back in Moses' day it was desirable to marry a family member. So the question became just how distant of a family member was legally eligible to become a marriage partner. Marrying within the clan or the tribe was even promoted as a good thing. Matter of fact, a very important thing. Now, a man marrying a cousin was actually seen as the almost ideal partnership. So, just how close in blood relationship could one come and not violate God's laws on it? That's what Leviticus 18 is establishing. Now, verse 16 talks about a man not entering into relations with his brother's wife. Now, the thing to understand is that, in general, what is not being talked about here in this chapter is adultery. That's not the issue. There would be some other reasons for this sexual relations to occur. And usually it would be marriage to that particular woman. What is also a bit confusing, though, is that once a man marries a woman, in some circumstances, that woman's relatives become considered consanguinal relatives of the man, even though there may be no actual blood relationship. 
And this is because the Hebrew view of marriage was that marriage brought the man and the woman together as one flesh. That instruction to mankind, of course, dated all the way back to Genesis. And therefore, if that woman was previously married and had children, those children were considered to be close blood relations, even though technically they weren't. So a man could not carry out a process, for instance, whereby he married and then, then this woman died, his wife died, or he divorced her, and then ne next marry her daughter, even if that daughter wasn't biologically his. That was forbidden. Okay? This was because the Hebrew culture regarded that stepdaughter now as just as much a blood relative as if she was actually biologically that man's own child. Okay. Now, I know this is detailed, it can get a little confusing, but listen. The Hebrew society of the Bible was very complex. Okay. And these are things we need to understand, at least on some level, because we're going to have to deal with them throughout the Torah and the whole remainder of the Bible. Now, one other rule to understand. In general, as far as the Old Testament era was concerned, men almost couldn't commit adultery. That was looked upon, adultery, as primarily a female crime. A man having sexual relations out of wedlock was usually looked down upon, but it wasn't something he would have necessarily been penalized for. Of course, a man whose wife cheated on him certainly wouldn't be very happy about it. And in fact, he might well kill the other man in an honor killing, maybe killing his own wife in the process, and usually it was considered justifiable. Anyway, Jesus kind of straightened all that flawed thinking out that was tradition not scripture, All right. once he started his ministry. Anyway, as for this verse 16 and a man not being able to marry his brother's wife, there is a very major exception to this rule. And it's introduced in Deuteronomy 25. If a man has married, has, has, if a man has a married brother and that brother dies, if that dead brother had not uh, wife that dead brother's wife had not produced him a son for an heir it became the duty of the surviving brother to marry her so that she could produce children in the name of the deceased brother you with me it's called leverate marriage okay. this was considered critical in keeping intact Israelite family lines. And equally as important, it had to do with this ancient belief that it was in a man's offspring that his life essence continued to exist after his physical death. So if he had no children, his life essence ended at the grave. So this was a very scary thing if a man's wife did not produce him children at all, a son for an heir, and this is why we read so much that it was a great shame 
of that wife for not producing children for a man, a barren woman, was considered a curse. Why? Because that husband, all he had to look forward to is his life essence ending upon his death. Let's read a little bit more chapter 18. Let's read from 17 through 21. Open your Bibles back up to Leviticus 18. We're going to read four or five more verses. Leviticus 17 through 21. You are not to have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. You're not to have sexual relations with her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are close relatives of hers and it would be shameful. You're not to take a woman to be a rival with her sister and have sexual relations with her while her sister is still alive. You're not to approach a woman in order to have sexual relations with her when she is unclean from her time of nidah. You're not to go to bed with your neighbor's wife and thus become unclean with her. You're not to let any of your children be sacrificed to Moloch, thereby profaning the name of your God. I am Adonai. Okay, in verses 17 and 18, we begin to move from the issue of marriage to blood relatives to simply now general moral matters involving sex. For instance, a man should not marry or have sexual relations both with a woman and her daughter. This is referring to a woman who, of course, had that daughter with another man. Nor with that woman's granddaughter. Nor in verse 18 is a man to marry two or more sisters, having them both as wives at the same time. Now before we get to the next section of Leviticus 18, let's pause momentarily and discuss something that many of you are already likely thinking about. Didn't Abraham marry his own half-sister? And how about Israel himself, Jacob? That great patriarch who married two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Okay. Well, certainly this occurred well before the time of Leviticus, yet we have to ask the question, did they do something wrong? Okay. Well, we have little choice but to accept that even if it was not God's ideal will that they would marry sisters or so close in family bloodlines, it apparently was his general will to at least allow it. I I can't tell you for sure why, but neither am I going to apologize and make up some flowery reason or defend God's choices on it. The point is that much like it was with Noah, when after the flood he could eat meat, but it was prohibited before that great deluge, so it is with the definition of consanguinal or close relatives when it comes to marriage. A different dynamic emerged upon Mount Sinai. Well, we move on now into sexual matters that aren't about incest, but that God says are immoral. And as we've already studied the state of impurity, that a female enters when she's on her monthly cycle, I find it interesting that it is once again brought up here. And it is lumped in not with unclean, but with immoral. Not that the woman is immoral for 
having what is but a natural bodily function, but that the man, her husband, would be doing something immoral in God's eyes to have sexual relations with his wife during that period of time when she's in a state of nidah, a state of uncleanness. Well, next in verse 20 is the prohibition against a man engaging another man's wife in sexual relations. And actually, this verse is a little more explicit than what most translators have allowed. It literally says that a man is not to place his seed into his neighbor's wife. It really means he's not to go get her pregnant. That's what it means. Okay. Besides the immorality of it all, the cultural reality was that the children produced from that type of an illicit affair would be looked down upon. They'd be shunned. And they would suffer greatly from it, although they were totally innocent. Notice that it also says that the male who does that thing impregnates his neighbor's wife is defiled right along with the woman. That is, both male and female are doing something wrong and they become unclean from doing it. Now, it's interesting how even the most pious of Hebrews tended to skip over this part of the law and made it tradition that it was only women who were doing something wrong in this case. The Jewish culture also didn't appreciate it very much when Jesus reminded the men of their hypocrisy and their sinfulness when they had affairs with women other than their wives. Well, then in verse 21 we have a command. It doesn't really seem to fit with all the rest. It's an order inserted here not to allow the Israelite children to be offered as human sacrifices to the Middle Eastern god, Molech. Now, just a word here. For a long time it was thought that Leviticus had to have been written not sometime around the Exodus, but considerably later. Partially because of the mention of this god, Molech. All evidence, according to archaeologists, was that the Canaanites didn't even worship a god called Moloch until around the 7th century B.C. We're talking at a time well after David and Solomon. About 600 years, actually, after the Exodus. But in the last few years, an altar has been found that dates to the 14th century B.C., just outside of Amon, Jordan. And lo and behold, buried underneath that altar were the skeletons. Dozens and dozens and dozens of skeletons of many small children and infants. Now, one could debate whether this was an altar dedicated specifically to Molech. But it was for certain an altar of sacrifice to some pagan god or another. So it's no longer debatable that in what at that time, Jordan, it amounted to be actually a section of the land of Canaan at the time of the Exodus. 
child sacrifice was most certainly occurring and it has been established all right, in Canaan during the era of the Exodus. Let's read a little bit more of Leviticus now. Let's go from verse 22 of chapter 18 to the end. You're not to go to bed with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. You're not to have sexual relations with any kind of animal and thus become unclean with it, nor is any woman to present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things because all the nations which I'm expelling ahead of you are defiled with them. The land has become unclean. This is why I'm punishing it. The land itself will vomit out its inhabitants. You're to keep my laws and rulings and not engage in any of these disgusting practices. Neither the citizen nor the foreigner who lives among you. For the people of the land have committed all these abominations and the land is now defiled. If you make the land unclean, it will vomit you out too. Just as it is vomiting out the nation that was there before you. For those who engage in any of these disgusting practices, whoever they may be, will be cut off from their people. So keep my charge not to follow any of these abominable customs Then that others before you have followed, and thus defile yourselves by doing it. I am Adonai your God. In verse 22, we get an explicit command against homosexuality. Remember now, this admonition, as I explained last week, all of chapter 18, except for one or two specific areas, is actually aimed at males. Male homosexuality is well attested to among the ancient Canaanites, even in non-biblical records. And God says that for a man to do such a thing is in Hebrew, toivah, right? which is usually translated as an abomination, an abhorrence. It was the strongest possible term to describe just how terrible of a transgression same-sex relations is to God. There have been found ancient depictions of Canaanite priests performing ritual homosexual acts to their gods. And Yehovah has made it abundantly clear that his people are not to engage in such a thing. In Deuteronomy... The Hebrew term Mehir Kelev is used to describe the wages, the, mon- the monetary payment, usually paid for the services of a homosexual prostitute. It translates to a verse we've all probably heard. The wages of a dog. Okay. A dog was an idiom for a male homosexual prostitute. So there's no need for a Christian to be defensive about our stand or what should be without reservation our stand concerning homosexuality. It is an abomination to God. It is stated directly as such here and in a number of places in both the Old Testament and the New. Therefore, homosexuality must not be tolerated within the body of Christ. And we should do all we can to to encourage the end of it in our society. Nobody is saying that if we have a 
a gay daughter or son or friend that we should stop loving them or we should stop acknowledging them as human beings. But we should love them by praying fervently for Yehovah to rescue them from this destructive behavior. You know, and, and, and never by excusing it as a as an acceptable lifestyle. Okay? Or by making light of it, by the way. It's a very serious matter before the Lord. Well, finally, the commands on sexuality come to a conclusion with a prohibition against bestiality. Sex between a human and an animal. I don't think I need to go into detail about this one. What's interesting, though, is the reason put forth that this is wrong. And it's one we've encountered before. This sexual behavior, says God, is wrong because it's an act of tevel. Usually, this word, this Hebrew word tevel, is incorrectly translated as perversion. But it more literally means confusion. It means improper mixing. Confusion and improper mixing is an offense to the Lord and he commands against it. The idea is that it is confusion to mix species. It is improper mixing to have union between a man and a beast. What is intended as good and proper sexual behavior within a species should remain there. And confusion or improper mixing is the opposite of order and purity. Therefore, confusion is not something God's people who are to emulate God as much as a man can would never to engage in it. Now, I should mention as well that this in no way is referring to the mixing of human races. Never ever does the Bible deal with race even though it does draw a distinction between Hebrews and Gentiles. Yet in reality, even that is not about race because people of any race have always been welcome to join Israel. This is about mixing people with animals. And it's called confusion. Yet beyond mixing humans with animals, this command does indeed have some implications with mixing people within the human species. Let me be clear though that in that, that the concern is about the mixing of unholy people with holy people. Or in the Old Testament context, the mixing of the people of Israel with anybody else who is not and does not want to be joined to Israel. Even then, though, this wasn't referring to racial or genealogical purity. It was referring to people whose loyalties would be to the God of Israel versus those who were not loyal to him. For from the earliest times in the Bible, foreigners, people of other races, were welcome to join with Israel and they were welcome 
to marry racial Hebrews. The caveat was that they had to give up their worship of their old false gods and worship only the God of Israel. Well, this chapter wraps up with the warning that you, meaning the Israelites and those foreigners among them, are not to do any of these prohibited sexual things or what happened to the Egyptians and what's about to happen to the residents of the land of Canaan will be divinely visited as well upon Israel. Now, this is not an idle warning and it is not symbolic. In verse 25, it says that the land will become defiled by violating these laws on sexual behavior. We have seen in Leviticus a basic principle of uncleanness get developed. It is that uncleanness can and is transmitted from people to inanimate objects and back again. Every one of the improper acts spoken against in Leviticus 18 creates ritual impurity, ritual uncleanness in the violator. Some sufficient number of these acts committed by some sufficient portion of the ruling population of a nation causes the land of that nation to become defiled. Unclean. And as a result, God says he'll take action and he'll remove that people from that land as a judgment against them. Now, throughout the word, Jehovah makes it clear that the land and its inhabitants are intertwined. Being exiled out of one's land or having a nation's economy collapse, or a nation experiencing a whole series of terrible natural disasters wreaking havoc on it, are but a few of the ways that God will cause nature itself to come against the inhabitants of a land that's full of wicked people who have defiled their land. And of course there is some balance point, some tipping point, at which some acts of rebellion against the Lord just become too much and he takes action. We don't know exactly where that tipping point is, but it exists. Listen to God's word to Abraham in Genesis. Don't go there, but hear this. Genesis 15, 13. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge that nation whom they serve, and afterward they'll come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Hmm. Abraham was up in the land of Canaan when Jehovah spoke this to him. And God tells Abraham that many years into the future, his descendants are going to go from this land to another land and there they'll become enslaved. Then later, they'll come out of that land and then return to the land of Canaan. Well, we know they went down to Egypt. They were there 400 years and came, came out. But what was the determining factor 
as to when that would happen. Look at the last half of verse 16. For the iniquity of Genesis 15, 16, by the way. Okay. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, once this tribe called the Amorites have reached some level of wickedness and evil, when child sacrifice, in which they were known for, and homosexuality and other sexual immoralities before God, of all kinds, when all of this has become sufficiently widespread and accepted by and practiced by the Amorites, then God will act, how? By bringing Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, the Israelites, back into the land where the Amorites lived, the Amorites being cast out, and the remainder of them subjugated to the Hebrews. This is a pattern we're going to see a lot in the Bible. Now, I hope others here are as uneasy about this as I am. This is not just an ancient Bible story. This is how God operates. Every nation on earth that has reached some level of depravity that God determines is too much has been terribly judged. Whether it's World War II Germany or some of the Middle Eastern nations that have bedeviled Israel or some currently godless European nations who are on the brink of financial collapse, the time inevitably comes when God takes action. Okay, How about America? How much longer is our God going to allow our modern version of child sacrifice, abortion, to go on as an acceptable national policy? And how much longer is God going to allow homosexuality to be glorified to the point that some church denominations now openly market to gays and even some ordain them as shepherds for God. Okay. How much longer will God allow a relatively few people on this planet to live in a place that calls having only one car and one color television set poverty? Okay. While the majority of the planet goes to bed hungry. How much longer will God allow his removal from every government and public place and school and activity in our nation. I don't know the answer to this. But I do know that if he will harshly judge his own set-apart people, those who he calls his precious treasure, he's not going to turn a blind eye to us. Let's move on to Leviticus 19. Now before we read it, talk about it for a minute. This particular chapter of Leviticus is often set apart as something rather special by the Hebrews. It's a long chapter. And sometimes it's even referred to as a Torah within a Torah. So complete is it. The idea is that chapter 19 of Leviticus is almost a sort of mini-Torah. It's a summation, if you would, of the rules and regulations that form the foundation for all the other rules 
and regulations of the law. Now, just like we're told that the command to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves is the basis upon which all the Torah commands stand, chapter 19 lays out what amounts to the definition of what it means to be holy. Nothing could be more critical to the life of a believer than to know how to be holy. So this chapter 19 is going to lay out what a holy life looks like for one of God's people. Now, the ancient rabbis taught that this chapter was so important that it needed to be read in front of the whole assembly because the Ten Commandments are embodied in it. Therefore, in the same way that Moses read aloud the Ten Commandments to the whole nation of Israel, and this was at God's instruction, so chapter 19, we are told, is to be read before the whole congregation. And indeed, we will find direct reference in chapter 19 to at least six of the Ten Commandments and indirect reference to the remaining four. Those six commandments begin with the one that's most often omitted in modern Christian doctrine. The one that says, I am Jehovah your God. Yeah, it surprises most people to know that I am Jehovah your God was the original first commandment. If you'll remember back several months ago in our lesson on Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, I told you then that the earliest Hebrew manuscripts ever discovered number the Ten Commandments, just like most of our modern Bibles do. One, two, three, four, five. It'll put in the margins. But whereas our Christian Ten Commandments always begin with, you were to have no other gods before me as the first command, in fact, the original scriptures list I am Yehovah your God as the first commandment and you were to have no other gods as the second commandment. Okay. Sometime in the 4th or 5th century AD the Roman church decided to abolish that first commandment. Okay. But since the Bible clearly states that there are nine and not ten I mean rather, rather ten and not nine Commandments. the church authorities had a little bit of a problem. They solved it by splitting the original second commandment into two. The first being, you're to have no other gods, and then the next being, you're not to make a graven image. Okay. The other five commandments directly referred to in Leviticus 19 are the second, no other gods, the third, no false oaths, the fourth, observe the Shabbat, the Sabbath, the fifth, honor your parents. And the eighth, no stealing. Now here's the thing. It was really a sad day, I think, in Christianity when the changeover from Jewish leadership to Gentile leadership of the church became complete. Because at that moment, those things about scripture that felt comfortable 
and very familiar to the Gentile world became dominant. And those things about Scripture which were overtly Jewish and therefore uncomfortable and unfamiliar to Gentiles were all set aside. And among those Jewish things that was that were uncomfortable and unfamiliar and therefore set aside was the entire Torah. And with it went the proper context for everything that would follow in the Bible. Holiness, the supreme importance of holiness, and what God's definition of holiness is, all was set aside. So as we study Leviticus 19, let us each pray that God will put the admonitions contained in this chapter very deep into our hearts and that he will show us how to reapply them, not reinterpret them, but reapply these divine ordinances into our 21st century Western culture because indeed we are told we are to be holy for he is holy. So let's read Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to read it all. Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the entire community of Israel. Tell them, You people are to be holy. Because I, Adonai, your God, am holy. Every one of you is to revere his father and mother, and you are to keep my Shabbats, my Sabbaths. I am Adonai, your God. Do not turn to idols. Do not cast metal gods for yourselves. I'm Adonai, your God. When you offer a sacrifice or peace offering to Adonai, offer it in a way that will make you accept it. It is to be eaten that same day you offer it and the following day, but if any of it remains until the third day, it is to be burned up completely. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it will have become a disgusting thing and will not be accepted. Moreover, Everyone who eats it will bear the consequences of profaning something holy meant for Adonai. That person will be cut off from his people. When you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land, don't harvest all the way to the corners of your field. Don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Likewise, don't gather the grapes left on the vine or fallen on the ground at their harvest. Leave them for the poor, for the foreigner. I'm Adonai, your God. Do not steal from, defraud, or lie to each other. Do not swear by my name falsely, which would be profaning the name of your God. I am Adonai. Do not oppress or rob your neighbor. Specifically, you are not to keep back the wages of a hired worker all night until morning. Do not speak a curse against a deaf person or place an obstacle in the way of a blind person. Rather, fear your God. I am Adonai. Do not be unjust in judging. Show neither partiality to the poor nor deference to the mighty. But with justice, judge your neighbor. Do not go around spreading slander among your people, but also don't stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. I'm at an eye. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but but rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you won't carry sin because of him. Don't take vengeance on or Bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am at an eye. Observe my regulations. Don't let your livestock meet with those of another kind. 
Don't sow your field with two different kinds of grain and don't wear a garment of cloth made with two different kinds of thread. If a man has sexual relations with a woman who is a slave intended for another man and she has neither been redeemed nor has she been given her freedom, there's to be an investigation. They're not to be put to death because she was not free. In reparation, he's to bring as a ram as a guilt offering for himself to the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest will make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before Adonai for the sin he's committed. And he'll be forgiven for the sin he has committed. When you enter the land and plant various kinds of fruit trees, you are to regard its fruit as forbidden for three years. It will be forbidden to you and not eaten. In the fourth year, all of its fruit will be holy. It's for praising Adonai. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit so that it will produce even more for you. I'm Adonai, your God. Do not eat, do not eat anything with blood. Do not practice divination or fortune telling. Don't round your hair at the temples or mar the edges of your beard. Don't cut gashes in your flesh when someone dies or tattoo yourselves. I'm Adonai. Do not debase your daughter by making her a prostitute so that the land will not fall into prostitution and become full of shame. Keep my Sabbath. Revere my sanctuary. I'm Adonai. Do not turn to spirit mediums or sorcerers. Don't seek them out to be defiled by them. I'm Adonai, your God. Stand up in the presence of a person with gray hair. Show respect for the old. You are to fear your God. I'm Adonai. If a foreigner stays with you in your land, do not do him wrong. Rather, treat the foreigner staying with you like the native born among you. You're to love him as yourself. For you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I'm Adonai, your God. Don't be dishonest when measuring length, weight, or capacity. Rather, use an honest balance scale, honest weights, an honest bushel dry measure, and an honest gallon liquid measure. I'm Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Observe all my regulations and rulings and do them. I'm Adonai. We're going to be in chapter 19 for a while. Chapter 19 is the general definition of how holiness should be manifested in the life of persons who are set apart for holiness. In the Old Testament, those persons were Israel, physical Israel. In the New Testament, those persons are those who have come into a spiritual union with Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Now, we can have legitimate arguments in here over whether or not we're to follow the letter of the 613 laws and regulations set before us in the Torah. But what is not arguable is that the principle and pattern follow me. What the principle and pattern of what was holy in 13 or 1400 B.C. when the Torah was first given to Moses, that's still the same today. 
I'd like to quote to you a brief passage of an essay written by Joseph Hertz, who was the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations during the time leading up to and during most of World War II. He says this about Leviticus 19 in general and about the topic of holiness specifically. He says, developing the idea of holiness as order and not confusion. This list, that is the verses of Leviticus 19 that we just read, this list upholds rectitude and straight dealing as holy and contradiction and double dealing as against holiness. Theft, lying, false witness, cheating in weights and measures, all kinds of dissembling such as speaking ill of the deaf while presumably smiling to their faces, hating your brother in your heart while speaking kindly to him. These are all clearly contradictions between what seems and what is. And that is not holiness. Or as Professor G.J. Wenham says, holiness is expressed in moral integrity, which in turn is expressed by physical wholeness. That's the, that's the sense of holiness as it's defined in its most earthly sense in the Torah. Bluntly this says, and I paraphrase, don't talk to me about the Holy One, Yeshua, living in your heart at the same moment you're denying the need to even live a holy life. Don't you talk to me about that. Don't you tell me that you can have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, but you see utterly no reason for obedience in your life. And what is God's Torah but the spelling out of what we call morality? Morality is what is good before God, as separated from what is not. You know, I'm not saying that we're necessarily to act out these laws established in an ancient Middle Eastern cultural context in exactly the same way they were enacted, or they were acted out rather over 3,000 years ago. However, some things should be, and other things can be brought forward fairly intact. The biblical feasts, for example. Right? But the definition and the principles behind what is moral and what was not was set down by God and it really doesn't have any cultural barriers. And, and thus these principles should never be altered by men. You know, it's interesting that Rabbi Hertz sees as one of the primary defining attributes of holiness as order. Again, as defined by God, not by man, as opposed to chaos and confusion because last week when we were looking at the first part of Leviticus 18, we saw, and, and this week as well, we saw that the sin of bestiality, having humans having sex with animals, was wrong. Why? Because it was confusion. It was an act of confusion. Now we're going to stop and look at a couple of instances in Leviticus 19 where confusion is the issue. And it takes on some rather interesting and I think profound applications.
After the introduction to Leviticus 19, up at verse 1, and then the general command to be holy, for I am holy, we get reminded of two of the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And in verse 4, Israel is told two things. They should revere their father and mother, and they should keep my Sabbath. Now, what is it about one's father and mother that is so important to God? They give you life, at least in the physical sense. And they were given the responsibility to be an authority over you in order that you be trained up in holiness. From a spiritual viewpoint, it's similar to our relationship with God. He gives us life, and so we're to recognize his authority over us. You know, this is the reality of duality in action again. That is, some principle is true both on the physical realm and the spiritual realm simultaneously. And of course, here we find... Leviticus 19, another reference to Sabbath observance put front and center. Keeping the Sabbath was a key part of God's plan for all who trust Him. Not as part of salvation, but as obedience. As with anything God or... Say it again. As with anything God ordains... Okay. Sabbath could be made into a burden and and into a works-based legal exercise. And in fact, Sabbath did become one of the most argued points of contention among the Jewish people. Not whether or not it ought to be observed, or frankly, even when it should be observed. Rather, the disagreements were over the details of how to properly observe Shabbat. Now, not going to go into my usual spiel today about Shabbat being the seventh day of the week and only the seventh day, Saturday in our modern terminology, even though it is so. What I want to point out this evening is that Sabbath is one of those moral choices set out before us. If you attended my lesson on Genesis 6, where we explored the source of evil, and why and how evil exists, then the idea of the Sabbath being a moral choice is perhaps a little bit easier for you to grasp. For those who didn't hear that lesson, it might be good for you if you obtained a CD of that lesson or listened to it on our website. But in a nutshell, the concept is that our will is that part of us that's put there by God for us to make moral choices. Will is not about preferences. Like ice cream flavors, or which deodorant soap you like best, or what to have for lunch. God allows men many preferences that are neither inherently right nor wrong. But the choice of the will is always about right and wrong, good and evil, obedience or disobedience. In the same way, Sabbath is not about preference. 
how one observes Sabbath, what exactly you eat, what you wear, where you observe it. Do you light candles or don't you? What prayers precisely do you recite? All of those things are a matter of preference, as is made clear by Paul in Colossians 2.16. Because there he says, Let no one disquiet you about food and drink or about the distinction of festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. God's Sabbaths and new moons were no more abolished than food and drink. So along with Sabbath, what we should begin to ponder is this. Since it's our wills that make moral choices, and by definition, that choice is always for God or against Him. And since God makes it clear just what defines for God and against Him, that indeed disobedience amounts to nothing less than a moral choice of our wills to go against God. But also notice that there is some kind of connection made here in these first few verses of Leviticus 19 between honoring one's parents and honoring the Sabbath. Very interesting. Not only are they the very first things mentioned right after the instruction to be holy as God is holy, but being put into the same sentence connects them. Now, this did not escape the eye of the great rabbis. For this particular sentence structure, this Hebrew sentence structure was intended to show that there is linkage between those two commands. It was demonstrating that even as honoring our parents stands as priority number one among our duties to other human beings, the very first step among our duties to God and therefore towards our being holy is to sanctify the Sabbath. To set it apart in our lives just as God sanctified the seventh day, the Sabbath, at the beginning of the world. Next week we'll get a little bit farther into chapter 19. That'll do it for tonight.